And that apostrophe is standing for the missing E. But that E has been missing for half a millennium. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Oh, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we've talked a lot about a wide range of things. Last week, we were talking about the word nuclear and how that triggered something from your past, the bomb in the arts series of lectures that you had put together and a book you had written and so on. And we like to talk about those sorts of things, but we, of course, we also, on the Common Errors in English Usage podcast, like to talk about more of the nitty-gritty stuff. Um, one big topic is apostrophes that we have never talked about on the podcast. I can't believe we haven't gotten around to talking about apostrophes. It's a huge topic. Yeah, but it's huge in the sense that it's complex, but also I think it may be the number one pet peeve of people who worry about errors in language, the IT apostrophe as ITS thing, I would bet ranks right up there near or at the top of the things that really bother people. In fact, I saw um, one survey surveying people who considered themselves language mavens, and that was the one that came up on top as the one that bothered people the most. I remember seeing that also. And it reminded me of a blog post that I had written several years ago. This was when the second edition of the Common Errors in English Usage book was ready to come out. Of course, we're on the third edition now. So uh, listeners who don't have the third edition, they're not up to date, right? All right. So they should run right out and go find it and buy it. Um, so that's our little ad. Much expanded and lots of cool cartoons. <laughs> Much expanded. Yeah, lots of cool cartoons. When the second edition came out, I had been invited to go and uh, speak to a writing class at, uh, oh, I guess it was at Washington State down here in Vancouver, though, not where you were, up in Pullman. But For those of you who may be listening to this from far away, there is a town called Vancouver in Washington State right across the Columbia River from Portland, and it's sort of the other Vancouver yeah, not to confuse people, it really was Washington State. It wasn't British Columbia. So uh, I was invited to talk to a writing class, and um, the angle was, well, here's an editor, and he'll come and talk to the class and give his perspective on what are the ins and outs of getting your work published, and um, what might you expect when an editor comes in and edits your work. Well, Somebody asked me the question, uh, what are the three most common errors in English usage? And that was the one that sprang to mind immediately was its and its, the I-T-S and I-T apostrophe S. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, and maybe I'll talk more about what I had to say about it on my blog post. But before we get into that, I want to hear what you have to say about some of the stuff that's not related to punctuation. The word apostrophe has a more interesting kind of background, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it has a completely separate meaning. Um, in rhetoric, apostrophe is a figure of speech. So uh, a speaker or a writer, and a writer acting as if it's speaking, he or she is speaking, um, addresses some other person or thing. You could uh, say, hail blithe spirit, for instance. Um, you can uh, address a rose or anything else, but it could be another person as well. And it's often started with an exclamation. And in older poetry, it's often, oh, that a person would say, oh, thou braggart. <laughs> There's a, an example from Macbeth that gets used to illustrate this. Um, when Macbeth hallucinates seeing the knife that he used to kill Duncan. Is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. So in that line, he suddenly switches from talking about the dagger to talking to it. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Yeah. So that's an apostrophe in the rhetorical sense. Another example is from John Donne poem, which starts with an apostrophe. Some definitions of apostrophe will tell you that it's when uh, there's a pause in a poem or a speech and the person addresses somebody. But it doesn't have to be a pause. It can be right at the beginning. So here John Donne is talking to death. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. As Dunn was very religious, so he's thinking about eternal life there. That's probably one of his most famous lines, though, death be not proud. And the whole thing is, is an apostrophe. And I, I ran into another one that somebody used as an example. Ronald Reagan is famous. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, Gorbachev wasn't there. That was a rhetorical gesture. Um, that is not what led to the tearing down of the wall, by the way. But uh, we've talked about that before, and I won't go into it again. So when you address something that is not present, that's an apostrophe. And it's a rhetorical device. It's not all that uncommon, actually, to hear that. Uh, for rhetorical terms, we don't normally stand back and analyze them. Ah, an apostrophe. No, and it's used mainly when people are analyzing poetry, mostly older traditional poetry. So in this sense, apostrophize can be a verb. To apostrophize is to engage in doing an apostrophe, and I went looking for something about this and used good old Google Books, which we have recommended before on this podcast. And this is Alexander Tung, is a uh, literary scholar who uh, wrote a book that he included a chapter on Coleridge's poetry. And Coleridge does a lot of poetry, which is done in dialogue format or where there's somebody speaking anyway. And this is what he has to say about it. One may ask, what do these poems have in common besides relaxed and informal tone, serious subject matter, and conversational style? One thing we can easily notice is, although they are called conversation poems, they are actually monologues, not dialogues. To be sure, in each of the poems, the poet, the speaker, is seemingly talking to someone, but the someone is actually only apostrophized in the poem. 
He or she never responds directly in speech or action. The Aeolian harp, for instance, begins with the apostrophe, My pensive Sarah, and the same addressee, Sarah Fricker, is subsequently apostrophized four more times. My love, O beloved woman, meek daughter in the family of Christ, and heart-honored maid. So he really gets a good workout from apostrophize and analysis. Yes. So when you employ an apostrophe, you are apostrophizing. All right. Okay. I get it now. Just in case you ever run across that, it's not very likely you will, but it does have this other meaning. Also, it has a very unusual and very narrow scholarly meaning in botany. And I didn't run into this until I looked in the dictionary. But the aggregation of protoplasm and chlorophyll grains on the cell walls adjacent to other cells is called apostrophe as opposed to topostrophe where they collect on the free cell walls. Mm. I probably won't be using that one, but um, it's good to know it exists. I guess. Yeah, you know, if there's a pause in the conversation at a party sometime, you might just bring that up. All right. Well, <laughs> I love that background because uh, the word itself has more meaning to it than just the punctuation. But I want to talk about the punctuation. First of all, the first thing you need to know these days is how do you make an apostrophe? People think, well, you know, if you're typing along, don't you just hit the little apostrophe key over there? Right. That's all there is to it, right? But there's something a little trickier when we talk about typography. Yes. When um, I learned to type, of course, it was on a manual typewriter, then graduating to an electric, and they had straight up and down marks, which were used both for apostrophes and for foot marks and their other purposes, too. And then the quotation mark was also two little strokes straight up and down. He only needed one key for that because they weren't curled one way or the other. Uh, and so when computers like the Macintosh came along that used a, a more advanced kind of typography, there was a need to introduce curled apostrophes. And for a long time, people didn't know how to use them. They'd forget which key to hit. Windows computers had a pretty obscure kind of do it. For instance, if you wanted to hit an apostrophe rather than a quotation mark, you had to do some thinking about it. And uh, what happened is that Microsoft solved the problem for many of us by introducing smart quotes. And smart quotes are not geniuses, but they do the job most of the time by if there's a space before the quotation mark or the apostrophe, they make it an opening that is a curled to the right. To me, it curls to the right, but anyway, you know what it is. <laughs> right. I might say it curls to the left, but it doesn't really matter. It curls the other direction. Yeah, to enclose the following material. And then it curls the other way, so you need a different keystroke at the end. But what smart quotes did was encourage people not to worry about that, not to even be conscious of it. So they just type along and hit that key that has the two straight marks and or the one straight mark, and it's made curled, and it's made curled the right way for them. And this uh, has been adopted in other programs, so depending on how you're using your email, it may work there. Um, doesn't work on Facebook, as far as I know. 
And the problem is that because it's done for us, people are unconscious of it. And when it becomes important to do it, then it can be a challenge. So the first thing to do, if you haven't already, is to make sure that you're using smart quotes most of the time. You can also type an apostrophe by itself without using smart quotes uh, if you need to do that, like at the beginning of a word. And we'll talk later why that might be necessary um, by holding down option, shift, and the right bracket key. Yeah, It's not terribly intuitive. And on Windows, you hold down the control key and hit apostrophe twice, which is even less intuitive. Yes, and Windows has all kinds of funny business going on. Well, you mentioned turning on smart quotes. First, we should mention that depending on what word processing program you're using or what page layout program you're using, you're going to find that in the options for your type setting. So that's going to vary depending on what program you're using. But you need to go find it and turn it on so that you're curling your quotes. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're setting type that has a lot of computer code in it, such as the work that I often do, mm-hmm. I need to go find that place and turn it off. Right. So it won't curl my quotes and put them straight up and down the way they would look on a computer console. So you really have to be aware of that. Um on Windows, you can make the quotes curl. For example, if you're typing the word tis, that's got a little problem, right? If you hit the quotation mark, it's going to curl your quote the wrong direction. Right. Now, you had a little workaround of hitting the apostrophe twice. Yeah, you just type it twice and then delete the first one. Right. Now, if you want to avoid that little bit of trickery, which is very clever, but... Uh, there is actually an operation where you can override it on a Windows machine. If you hold down the Alt key and you need to turn your num lock key on for your keypad, hold down the Alt key. And while the Alt key is held down, you press this sequence, 0, 1, 4, 6. And it will, <laughs> everybody memorize that, and it will curl the quote the correct direction if you're typing a word like tis, which begins with a mark that's curled backwards. So that will do it. And you mentioned also in the past, and you know, when we get into sophisticated typography, there are lots of issues. Now you might think if I want to create a foot mark, uh, if I want to type the three foot symbol, you could just do the three and the straight quote. And I think for most people that would be correct. So it would just look just fine. However, if you are setting type professionally, you need to also go one step further and find out where the prime key is. Uh, So that is available on a Windows machine in your character map, probably using a symbol font or a math font. And you got to go find this thing. And it creates something that looks like an italicized straight quote. And in fact, you can use a straight quote and make it italic and almost nobody ever, I would guess, would see the difference there. Uh, Do you know anything more about setting up these things, overriding apostrophes on these computers that we're using now? Well, this is much less sophisticated than that and doesn't involve proofreaders. But um, since I'm a photographer, I often have occasion to write about 
prints and sizes and to say, well, this is an 11 inch by 14 inch print, something like that. And it's pain when you're typing in Word or in my mail program um, to have that come out as curled quotation marks. That's not what I want. So one workaround is to find a program that's open and handy that you can type the character you want. In this case, a straight up and down footmark, copy it, and then you go back into what you're writing and then just keep pasting in one of those every time you need one. One of the handiest places to do this sort of thing I've found is in the blank search blank on um, a web browser because that never changes what you type in. So you can just type in the character you want, quick copy it, paste it into the document you're working on. Aha. Uh-huh. Interesting. Okay. Wow, a lot of workarounds to do something that seems pretty, like it should be very simple, right? Right. This is not that uncommon. And and we all know the problems that can arise if you don't know the difference between the single hash mark and the two hash marks. The foot is a single, and the inch is the double, right? So when you're defining your prints, I assume you're using mainly inches, right? Okay, you call those hash marks? I always thought the... The um, pound sign was the hash mark. Oh, you, oh, you're right. That's what's commonly. Well, you know, we used to call them hash marks when I was a kid, and we were using them to repeat a line that went above on the chalkboard, for example. Uh-huh. If you were writing a verse and there was a repeated line, uh, the teacher used to always call those hash marks, and I seem to remember they were calling them hash marks. Really? It's a ditto mark. A ditto mark, yeah. sure, that'll work. Okay, yeah, but you're right, because a hashtag... I think your teacher was confused. <laughs> that's probably true, but I wonder, uh, we might need the, what do they call it, the Dictionary of American Regional English to figure out <laughs> if that is at all widespread to call those hash marks. But anyway, whatever you want to call them, the ditto marks, the two, is for inches, yeah. right? And the the single one is for feet, and the famous example was in the movie This is Spinal Tap. We all remember they were trying to make a replica of Stonehenge, and they were penciling out on a the back of an envelope around, or on a napkin around the dinner table and saying, we're going to build a replica of Stonehenge, and see, we're going to have this pillar here. And he makes a sign of like 14 with the double marks, meaning inches, of course, rather than... 14 feet. Uh, So when they build the stage design for this heavy metal band that comes out and does their epic song about Stonehenge, they drop the set piece down in the middle of, of what they're doing. And it's all to this very teeny tiny scale of just instead of 20 feet or 14 feet or something, it's uh, 20 inches or 14 inches or something. So you got to make sure you get those correct when you're writing them out. Don't get those mixed up. I'm sure you wouldn't want to have an 8.5 by 11 foot-sized print of one of yours. My camera's not quite good enough to make that a decent resolution picture, I'm afraid. It's good to be reminded, though, that traditionally the foot and inch marks are slanted, though not curled. And that's something that 
uh, as you were saying, takes quite a bit of doing on a computer to make it happen. But when you see signs and uh, sometimes the names of restaurants or whatever, and they want to put in an apostrophe like Sue's Cafe, um, they will often use a straight up and down foot symbol instead of a curled apostrophe. But you also see curled apostrophes used sometimes where they should have an acute accent, as in the word cafe, if you wanted to use the French spelling. And often, instead of having the accent mark over the letter, in this case an E, it'll be afterwards, so it turns into an apostrophe. For those who like to be picky or can be picky or find themselves being picky over things, computers have ratcheted that up a little bit in the area of typography because you're right. When you see something like that, a cafe with a curled apostrophe where they didn't figure out or didn't know to go figure out how to get the correct letter with the accent. Is it grave or is that what that is? That would be an acute. Acute. So the acute accent over it to make it correct. Um, nobody went to the effort to figure that out. They just thought, well, this is good enough. We'll just stick the apostrophe on the end. Uh, that's not taking advantage of the, the machine, the equipment that you have to do this all correctly. All right. If you're going to be sophisticated enough to include accents in your name, you ought to research it a little bit and get it so it looks the traditional way, I think. Well, what about all those inflections, though, in general? Um, are you a stickler? For example, uh, the proper name, the Brontes, should have uh, the umlaut, right? Or the two dots. Uh, diaresis. Yeah. What are they? It's called a diaresis. Yeah, I never get any of these. Uh, <laughs> I know what they look like, but I never get my terminology straight. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, the two dots over the O. Um, but do you ever worry about? No. Well, it depends. It, it really depends on the audience and what the tradition is and so on. I don't do it every single time. There are some occasions I do and some I don't. You just have to know your audience and know what the tradition is. Yeah. So, for example... Generally, in English, we leave out all accent marks from foreign words unless we're really trying to convey that we know that language and we're really using that language. But it does make a difference, yes, when you're using that language and to go in and see an example of which way the accent should go, which direction it should go to the left or to the right, or if it's acute or grave, or, you know, if you have the terminology correct, good for you. You're doing better than I am. But in any case, you need to see how it's presented and copy that over correctly and get it corrected in your own presentation. But in general, if you're typing the word resume, I don't worry about it, for example. thing technically with resume should have an accent over the first E, too, as well as the last one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It rarely does. But um, on the web, for many, many years, you hardly ever saw curled apostrophes or quotation marks. And that was because basic HTML, when it was first developed, didn't really have that as a character. And they finally uh, came up with some code to do that, which was and hash mark 19. Um, and let's put that followed by a semicolon. I don't think I ever used that one. Wait, was it 19 or 39? 
Well, I found work for 19. I don't know. This is obsolete anyway. I wouldn't worry about it. It's obsolete, right? I was replaced by ampersand R-S-Q-U-O quotation mark, which is right single quote, which is how an apostrophe is named. And I did my own common errors site, uh, pretty much writing raw HTML. And so... When I decided I wanted to take all those straight apostrophes and quotation marks and curl them, I had to do a massive search and replace. You would not believe how many occasions there are for that to misfire. Yes, yes. (laughs) And so it was years cleaning up the mistakes that were made in this massive project and finding these stray ones that had been curled the wrong way. Well, word to the wise, if you're typesetting, and especially these sorts of things, the apostrophes turning straight into curly or curly into straight, a global search and replace is worse than not using your machinery at all (laughs) because it has to be selective. You have to go piece by piece and judge it. Wait, is this one that actually needs to change or should change or is it not? And which direction does that quotation mark or the apostrophe go? All right. In HTML5, which is more advanced, you can use ampersand APOS. Yes. Semicolon. And that's a little more straightforward because it's easy to remember. R-S-Q-U-O is not so easy to keep in mind. But most people these days lay out their web pages using web-based tools or computer programs that do all the code for them. I don't use one, but I assume you just would use the smart quotes on your computer and it would render that for you. At least I do see curled quotation marks more than I used to on the web. Yeah, well, it depends on how sophisticated and or how buggy the device is that you are using. I mean, the most general one is uh, composing a blog post or a, a Twitter posting or something. But if you're writing a blog post, you should always hit the preview button to see how things are working. Um, sometimes there are little bugs that are happening that day that were not happening a few days ago as your blogger software got updated or something happened uh, mysterious. So it does help to know a little bit of HTML, even if you are using one of these programs that will insert the code for you and render it so-called correctly on the screen. You should always preview to make sure that uh, there's not something going on under the hood that you might need to go in and correct. But how much HTML do you need to know? Um, Probably only enough to know that you can look it up online and address the specific issues that you are having at that time. And another thing that I still see happening after all these years is people who compose posts in an online discussion in a word processor with smart quotes turned on paste it into the discussion. And if that particular forum is not set up, to deal with smart quotes, uh, it can render each apostrophe as a bit of code, mm-hmm. which is extremely annoying. It makes the post very hard to read. That's another good reason to preview yes. what you've written and take a look at it because nothing's worse than seeing a whole block of prose that you're interested in reading, but it's just littered with all these little numbers and symbols that are taking the place of the smart quotes that you used. 
Sure. So if you want to use a possessive uh, noun and you've got an apostrophe S at the end of it, you'll have the word that you are using, the noun you're using, and then you'll have this ampersand APOS semicolon or something like that between that and the end of the word. It's usually a, a string of numbers, I think. Yeah, so whatever gobbledygook, and then at the end of it, you'll have the S that you finally wanted. Yeah, you got to make sure that you're previewing your things before they get posted. But this is all of the technical background. There's the word apostrophe as it's used as a rhetorical device. Uh, there's rendering apostrophes, which is more involved, it turns out, than a lot of people think. Uh, and we have not even begun to talk about some of the main uses of the apostrophe uh these are the simple, basic things that people do get confused about in their writing, and we should talk about that. Yeah. Well, the main use in English of the apostrophe is to indicate a missing letter. That said, it's much more complicated than you might think on the face of it. I mean, the first reaction, I think, would people saying, ah, oh, what about plurals? And um, what about possessive? Well, we'll go into that. But we borrowed the use of the apostrophe from the French in the 16th century to indicate the omission of a vowel. Now, in French, if people who know any French at all will know something like l'amour, love is L apostrophe A-M-O-U-R, and the apostrophe there is because uh, amour would be preceded by the article le and the E is missing. I think amour is masculine. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, it's either la or le, and the E or the A is omitted, and then you put an apostrophe. And I got borrowed from that to use in English in a different way, really, than the French had been doing it. If you were in English saying, she was much loved, much loved, um, then in poetry, sometimes it would be rendered, she was much L-O-V apostrophe D. And you see that in older poems sometimes. And the reason for it is that E was originally pronounced. So uh, back in Middle English and maybe even Shakespeare's time, it would have been said, she was much loved. And when we started to omit the E in loved, uh, then the apostrophe is there to indicate that, well, we know it. this word's supposed to be spelled with an E, but we don't say it anymore, so it just stands for what's left out. And that's something that the apostrophe continues to do. Now, before we move on, I didn't know that before. So the word loved, well, beloved, we often say beloved mm -hmm. rather than beloved. Right. But both are used. But it's interesting that the E came back into the spelling. So... We originally put the apostrophe there to indicate in this line of poetry, don't add the extra syllable or it won't scan. It's going to throw the meter off. Yes. And it wasn't done much in prose for that very reason. So the E remained in the spelling most of the time. But for poetry, they often felt the need to take the silent vowel out so that it would scan. So you get the right number of accents per line. We dropped the sounding of it, but we stuck the letter back in. Well, yeah, the letter never really left, except in poetry. Right, but the concept of pronouncing loved as a two-syllable word 
we don't do that anymore. Right, right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I chose as an example of how um, plurals used to work in English, where you wind up leaving out uh, an E as well. And this is from Chaucer, how the bestest and the bredest are threaden for fairer. Well, that's in modern English, how the beasts and the birds all fled for fear. But beasts was spelled B-E-E-S-T-E-S, beasts. And birds was B-R-I-D-E-S, bridis became birdis, became birds. And we don't put apostrophes in there, but it's good to know that that's the story behind how this S at the end of a word occurred. There used to be an E in front of it. It wasn't just to make something plural that you added an S. It was the whole ES thing. And when the ES stops being pronounced in a possessive, then you use an apostrophe. So, Bredes songs, uh, which was B-R-I-D-D-E-S, songs, so the songs of the birds, the bird songs, become the bird songs, B-I-R-D apostrophe S. And that apostrophe is standing for the missing E, but that E has been missing for half a millennium. Yes, and for those keeping score at home, the Britis songs has no apostrophe in it whatsoever. Right, right. It's just B-R-I-D-D-E-S. Right. No apostrophe at all. Okay. There are no apostrophes in Middle English. Mm-hmm. So that explains why I started out by saying this always indicates a missing letter, and that's just as true for possession as it is for contraction, where we more often think of that as the rule. I am, when it's shortened to I'm, we know I apostrophe M. And so that's a classic example of um what we're very familiar with. And we use all the time now, even where there wouldn't have been an ES, we use an apostrophe S for possession, the flower's petals. I don't think that ever would have been flores petals. If it was, well, I don't know. It might have been. At any rate, not until the 19th century did it become established practice to mark possessive plurals with an apostrophe following the word. So if you have... A plural, which is also a possessive, that complicates the matter. So um, all the girls' schedules are the same. The girls, there's plural girls. So if you put the apostrophe before the S, that makes the word girl singular. And we need a plural here. So by putting the apostrophe after the S, it serves the same function, but it no longer has that root that connects it with the idea of leaving, having left out a vowel. Mm-hmm. So it's become pretty divorced from its roots. And uh, something that people often get messed up, realizing you have to move the apostrophe over to the end of the word when you've got a plural ending in an S. Okay, Paul, before you start talking about the ins and outs of creating possessive nouns and getting too deep into all of that. I would like to talk about one of your blog posts and I'm going to pick this up next week. You wrote one of the most popular blog posts on the blog that uh, you contribute to, and we'll link to it on the notes for this podcast. It was 
called the possessive apostrophe his origin. Very strange title for a very interesting history of some of all of this. And I know there's some controversy around it, but I'd like to go over that before we get into talking about other issues related to creating the possessives, plural possessive, singular possessive, joint possessive, and all of that. So can we save that for next time and just sign off for now? And I'll just say thank you for all of this background on apostrophes so far. Okay. Talk to you soon. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.